Hi, I'm Danny Fontaine, and if you haven't been here before, this is Pitch Masters, a podcast series featuring interviews with the leaders of the advertising, sales, and marketing industries to find out how they win business. This week's episode features Tommy Shafe, my mentor and founder of Major League Sales. He's one of the most sought-after sales coaches in the business. Tommy Chef, what a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks very much for joining us today. And for any listeners who might not know who you are, can you give us a bit of a brief background? Who is Tommy Chef? Hey, it's good to be here, Danny Fontaine, on The Pitch Show. Um, my claim to fame is uh, I was the head of Tony Robbins Consulting Firm, um, a chief strategy officer at the beginning of the last decade. Um, I substituted as uh, the, the person that uh, Chet Holmes uh, used to be. He uh, was uh, Tony Robbins' business partner, had a leukemia uh, challenge, thought that he was going to beat it. He didn't. I stepped in for a couple of years, and then when he uh, passed away, I cleaned up my work over the next year, and then I went off back into my own business. But that's kind of what I'm known for. In America today, what I mostly work with are companies that are privately held. I've moved to companies that are in the small cap business space um, in that we could create tremendous valuations, and I didn't have to travel globally. Um, In the pandemic, I made a little bit more of a switch, and that was to work with financial advisors because as people were concerned about dying, Uh, More and more people wanted to work with their financial advisors. And so that was a good space. Now I do both. Fantastic. And the company that you run is, of course, Major League Sales. Yeah. How did you even get into sales in the first place? Did something draw you into it or did you fall into it? It's a great question. I grew up, my father was a merchant. He had a tractor store in a little uh, state called North Dakota, frigid tundra of, of North America. Um, he sold tractors and, and uh, lawn and garden equipment. I used to work at the store with them, sell things door-to-door, uh, pussy willows to older elderly ladies. Uh, I had paper routes, that kind of thing. But I got my, uh, my first start at IBM, actually, where you work today. Okay. Yeah, I did some consulting for a guy who'd become a U.S. senator, um, computer consulting. IBM saw my work and said, who's the kid? And I had the opportunity to launch the software division for um, PCs. Uh, Turned out, Danny, that uh, older gentlemen and ladies did not want to sell software for PCs because there was no money in it. They wanted to sell (laughs) only big, big, like VMS 341, um, 3041, those kind of things. Uh, They want uh, system 38 uh, pieces of equipment. But they, they couldn't, they said, there's no money in the software for PCs. So they got young kids to do it. I worked there for um, about a year and a half, and then I moved on, graduated. I did it uh, as a co-op student in college. So where, where would you say you really cut your teeth in sales? Do you, is there a role where you remember some early learnings and you think, that, that transformed me? Well, the, the first part was actually IBM. You know, contrary to today, when I, see, Danny, I'm old. When I started with IBM, 
uh, they thought you would work there for 40 years. So you yeah. didn't have interviews. You had your interviews, and then you went to a physical. I remember going to a physical, full naked physical, to get all checked out to see if they would hire me because the idea would be like, let's make sure they're healthy because they're going to be with us forever. Wow. Could you imagine doing that today? Um, no. Back in that day, then they trained you like you were going to be there forever. Think about this. I'm a full-time college student that's going to sell uh, full-time at the same time. And so I'm 20 years old. And before I even met my manager, they flew me to Dallas, Texas, gave me an apartment, company car, a per diem, and six weeks of sales training. Now, the six weeks of sales training was 8 in the morning till 5 o'clock. You had assignments. The next day, you were recorded it uh, with the big Betamax or something. Um, then they looked at it. They brought you in to give you feedback. If you could not do your assignments, they sent you home. A wow. third of my class was sent home. There was a competition every day. Um, and so by the end of the six weeks, I had more sales training than almost any person I've encountered in my life that hasn't worked at IBM. Wow. And so I still remember it. Goals, objectives, strategies, needs, features, advantages, reaction. Goals, what are you trying to accomplish? Objectives, how would you measure that? Strategy, how are you going to do that? Um, needs, what do you need to help? Here's what we have. Here's the feature. Here's why it's good. What do you think? That was kind of the sales system. Competition every single day. Um, and so that was transformative. After I got that training, I said, I, I'm going to do sales. Wow. So if we fast forward just a few years to, to, to owning your own sales training business. Where did you come up with the stuff that you teach today? Is it kind of based on that old IBM stuff? Is it stuff you've thought of or what sources and, 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 and things have actually inspired you to? If, if you take somebody's idea, that's plagiarism. Mm. If you take a hundred people's ideas, that's research. I'm a researcher. I've had the great, um, the great opportunities to study, you know, one-on-one -on -one for years with Chet Holmes, to be coached personally by Tony Robbins, one-on-one, -on -one, like on a couch, six, eight-foot guy, talking and sitting, <laughs> talking to me, saying, you need to do this. Um, I've had to work with Tony, uh, with uh, Robert Cialdini, who wrote the book Influence, is right. one of my personal mentors. Not like I read a book, not like I went to a speech, like... I taught his whole class to him where he was the person in the room, just me and him um, and his partner. Um, so I learned from all of those folks and all of them uh, had an impact on me. I have 6,000 books in my library, 28-year um, journey. And it all came together. Uh, I read a book that said, uh, it was called Weird. I think it was called Weird. Okay. And it said, what made you weird when you were 12 to 14? For me, there were so many choices, Danny. Uh, was it, should I make a living playing the accordion? No, no, I will not. I did play accordion at 12. Um, I had 25,000 baseball cards. And I love baseball. I just was horrible at it. I, I couldn't hit a ball to save my life. Couldn't catch one even. Uh, it was even worse. But I loved it. And I loved it. And so I said... How would I make a living in sales in baseball? And then I got an idea. I would 
create a system that was based on baseball. It's called um, the All-Stars. Uh, my, my training is called All-Star Training, and the product is called the Five Tools Sales School because there's five tools of baseball. I made them into five tools of sales. Uh, so I've been doing that uh, since I left Tony Robbins and Chet Holmes' organization, and uh, it's served me well. Um, I built a niche. You know, you can build a niche for anything. I said, you know what would be fun? There are 30 baseball teams in America. They have 60 skyboxes in each stadium approximately. Each of those stadiums has about 200 corporations that subscribe to their skyboxes. If I could get 15% of those, I'd have a $100 million corporation. So I was like, I am going to, if, if I can't teach sales training to people that buy baseball skyboxes, <laughs> knowing more about baseball than almost anyone I know, then I should just quit. And right. uh, I get all excited. And then the pandemic takes away the whole season where there are no skyboxes. And the next year it's delayed. And then yeah. this year there was a strike where they weren't going to have the year. But God is my witness, Danny. My niche for uh, baseball skybox owners, my specific niche, it's going to go crazy next year. And uh, I'm looking forward to where life takes me. Wow, that's fantastic. So there's a couple of things that – so uh, I was on your major league sales, major league sales at uh, a previous organization. I don't know whether you met uh, – Jay Swan from uh, a skybox or from from somewhere else, but uh, he was leading Kin and Carter at the time, and he got you in to come and teach us all how to sell. Now, at that point in my career, I'd been reading a lot of books. I'd had quite a lot of experience on the ground, picking up stuff from a hundred sources, like you say. But your style and the content of your course was really quite different, in my opinion, from all of the other things I'd read because. Nowadays, a lot of things feel quite fluffy and it's all human first and user needs and, and all of these things that are very important. And whilst your stuff includes that, it also feels a bit more kind of cutthroat in terms of clients, especially in the sense of how we qualify things. So your kind of mantra from my own notes, actually, were um, presentations are to confirm, not to convince yeah you know what i forgot i wondered if you forgot that because i was like why is he inviting me to a pitch show you left an indelible mark on me it's it's and and my world is pitching literally the pitch and the stuff around it yes but how can we convince an audience in 90 minutes and use emotional connections and things to convince them so tell me about the flip side of the coin from your perspective well, uh, do you mind if I go back and tell you a story? The first time I saw a million-dollar pitch, I was at a Carmichael Lynch advertising. I was working on the McDonald's account. I was a junior person on it. and But the account team next to me was going after the Isuzu car account. Mm. Now, they spent over a million dollars to go after that account and lost. They bought Isuzus, and they had everyone in the agency drive them and run them into walls and like they, they did all this stuff. You're like, how was it? They were doing research. They did focus groups. They did all this stuff and they lost. In fact, when they came into, they, they had a thesis. 
You show these cars and you say these platitudes and no one even notices. So what they did is in their presentation, they showed like 10 car commercials and they changed the audio tracks. So they showed a commercial but played somebody else's um, you know, rhetoric and nobody noticed. Right. And they're like, you spend billions of dollars on your commercials and no one even notices, including you, that the words didn't match the cars. Like, what's the problem? When I saw them lose, I was a kid and I was like, what good does it have to have flash and prance and invest and do all this? If you're not talking and finding the real problem and getting them to own it, at that time I made a decision. And that decision was that I wasn't gonna jump up and down for people and show them like speeches and things. By the way, I can. I, I trained at Second City for five years. I did singing telegrams also in college to make a living. <laughs> like I could sing, I could dance, I could yeah. do stand up, I could do improv. I'm funny, and I spoke after Tony Robbins on four continents. Right. I can pitch, but I don't. And the reason I don't is because I don't like to work for nothing. I like to win. So yeah. I only go to pitch if we're going to win. And what okay. I did, so it's qualify first by saying is, Speeches are to confirm, closes are to confirm a decision that's already been made, not to excite them. When you leave a meeting presenting and go, oh, we were awesome, we're gonna win, I just know it. And then you win and you go, oh, we won. Or you come home and you go, I think we're gonna, no, we lost, we got screwed. Um, that up and down, what I found is your pitch at the end shouldn't be exciting to you. It should be like, it's a foregone conclusion. I don't get excited anymore because I sell every day. I don't have the energy to go get excited for the, now if you do one a year, maybe that's exciting and invigorating to you. And you know, I like winning as much as anyone. But I wanna know that the optics are on my side before I get there. Now, there are times to pitch. There are times to pitch, but that's not what I spend my life doing. Uh, so tell me and the listeners, how do you know you're going to win and therefore are happy to do that kind of confirmation pitch if necessary? How do you get into that position and how do you know? You know, we, um, I have four steps in mind, uh, my selling system. It's get a suspect, somebody that you've, suspect could do business with you and you've scheduled a meeting, right? It's in your diary. Um, second base is called the prospect. Prospect is somebody who needs you more than you need them. Mm. You have distinctive advantage. The third is qualified prospect. And this is someone who agrees with your thesis, has shared that they're willing to make the investments, of which there are three, time, money, and change. And change is the hardest one. Why don't people want to spend money? Because they're not willing to change because they don't think the problem's big enough. If the problem's big enough, they're willing to change and then they spend the money, okay? Then the last one is what's their decision process? When do they want to make it? How do they want to make it? Who's involved? Um, what do they need to see? And what will they do when they see it? 
Our challenge in the world is much like a physician or a doctor. I was at my doctor's office and he had a cup of coffee sitting on his, his uh, desk over there. And it said, don't confuse my web M don't confuse your WebMD search with my Harvard MD. <laughs> what he was basically saying is people come in every day and they're like, I have a rumbly tumbly and they get on the internet and they like go to WebMD and they go rumbly tumbly and they go, oh, cancer. They go, I have cancer, I have cancer, fix my cancer. And the doctor said, how about you let me be the doctor? You know what yeah. the problem is with the internet? The internet today, a bunch of people get on computer and they have access to more information than ever before. Prospects do their own diagnostic. And they say, we have determined our problem. Now we are shopping for it. They've taken all the consulting for the problem away. So they said, let me tell you, we have this problem. Dance, monkey boy, dance. Show us what you can do to solve our problem. Problem? The problem they've diagnosed is almost always the problem. For example, in my world, people call me up and they say, hey, you know, our business is down. Can you do presentation training? I'll be like, no. And they're like, why? I said, because presentation isn't your problem. Your problem is you answer RFPs. Your problem is your lead junkies. Your problem is you will talk to anybody about anything at any time, but you have never reflected on your business. Sun Tzu is credited with this quote, although I've never found it. Um, strategy. Um, without tactics is uh, the long road to victory. Mm. Tactics without strategy is the long noise before defeat. Okay, so strategy, thinking about your business. When you think about your business and get clear, like if there's seven, eight billion people in the world, if there's tens of thousands of companies in an industry that you play in, one needs you more than anyone else, and one needs you less. If you could figure out how to put them in order, where should you spend your time with? Only the top ones. Why? Mm. They have the greatest need. They, you're going to make the biggest difference. I often find that as people are running to go presentation to presentation and tell their stories that only their mother wants to hear, it sometimes <laughs> is better to reflect and get clear. What is the problem we, we work with? What's the problem we solve and for whom? And where is the return on investment the greatest? Now, if we can, we go spend our room in meetings or with distribution partners, alliance partners, um, affiliates that can get us to those places. I'll give you an example. In the pandemic, the world shut down on March 12th, uh, 2020. I was sitting in Indianapolis, and I checked in my hotel for a meeting the next day with a friend of mine. Uh, I saw hundreds and hundreds of people leave because an athletic tournament was canceled. As I watched them leave and board uh, buses to go to the airport, um, I realized the world was going to change. Like, this is mm -hmm. unprecedented. I got on the Internet. The NBA canceled their season. All these things happened. So I said, what am I going to do? Because I knew that in the private equity space, within a week, I'd get a call. We're taking our 30-day outs to keep our powder dry. All my mm. consulting agreements were going to stop. I reflected and I went to sleep peaceful. I got up and said, I'm going to spend my time selling financial advisors. Why? 
because the market is likely to be volatile. It's been a lot less volatile than I anticipated. Uh, I anticipated that people would be worried about death. And I thought, you know what? It's going to be a fortune to be made there. Quick decision makers, even if there are um, individuals, I, you know, I could sell them easily and make a big difference. Um, so the next morning, I told my partner, that's what I'm going to do. Um, by thinking about the problem I solved, though, like who would need my help the most, you would think? Bad financial advisors. Now they got other problems. What I focused was on the best financial advisors in the country. Mm -hmm. And now I have a bunch of folks that make 500000 to $10 million a year American that I coach. It's always fun. And at the end of an hour meeting, somebody can leave and make a hundred or 200000 extra dollars creating a multiple on their investment in me that's significant. So I could go to a referral-only business. Um, next Monday, I'll be talking to the top uh, 600 um, people at Mass Mutual at an, almost 8,500 uh, agents, talking to their top producers. Now, here's the point. When you get clear what problem you solve, for who, and where's the greatest return, and what they'd have to do to be there, you find your audience. When you qualify them ahead, it's not pitching. It's mm. not saying, let me, it, what it is, is telling a story. It's, it's sharing that I know you. I went out, I've worked with people like you. Here are the things that I've had. These are relevant. These are the three problems that I solve. If they don't meet you, if you don't have these on your table, tell me, and that's okay. We're not going to be a fit. But for those of you, that actually have these. I'm going to spend the next 40 minutes taking on a journey of what you can do about that. And at the end, by the way, during that, there'll be no commercial. Mm. But at the end of that, if I've earned the right, I'd like to spend the last two minutes giving you a commercial of what I do and then make you an offer. Would that be okay? Do you mind if we start? That's what I do. Um, it is the anti-pitch. It is the anti-pitch. It's not trying to get people that don't fit to buy. It's not premature ejubilation where you jump up and down and speak. By the way, I, I followed Tony Robbins, man. Like, I tried the jumping up and down. Fat guy should not jump up and down. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's really interesting, though. But I, I have a question then. So say you found a, a definite user needs, need. You, you, found a, you found a niche and you've got a willing group of people ready to listen to you, do you still need to create an emotional connection of some sort? Do you still need to kind of draw them in? Or is it a case of being analytical, just laying out the facts that you already know, laying out that problem that you've got a solution for? Well, actually, that presumes, that presupposes that we haven't created emotion doing that. Mm. You know, when I say to people, you know... When I talk to top producers like yourselves, and there's a reason for us to talk further, despite the fact they've been through myriads of training across the world globally, it's only because they have one of three problems. Here's the first one. There was a guy named Danny, Danny and 
This is the saga of he couldn't get in front of people. And here's Peggy Sue. And you know what? She couldn't. She Her deals, she closed a bunch of them, but they were all small. And they took her to small clients. And the better she was, the harder she worked, the more tired she was, and the more she hated her life. And the last one, it's John. And John was mad because the deals that were sizable that he liked, they took forever to close. I don't know. Can anyone relate to those stories? Let me tell you how I got here. I chased a whale once. I would tell a story. I'd tell a story of, you know, when I started my sales career after IBM, I sold life insurance. And um, mm. I'm 23 years old or something. I'm broke. I'm living with four, three guys from my fraternity house in college. We have all of our used furniture from our parents, you know, that they didn't want that was in a spare room. We assemble it in the fridge or two pieces of pizza that are moldy and like eight beers, you know, and somebody needed to clean that bathroom. You know what this room I'm talking about? None yeah, of my dude, friends yeah. were married and I was 600 miles, um, you know, uh, away from home. I didn't know anybody. And they said, go out and sell life insurance to your friends because a bunch of broke starting their career guys were like, let's buy a bunch of life insurance. But I got this, um, I got this insight. In fact, this idea is so great, the dog loves it. Did you hear yeah, that? The dog? I do. It's my bloody dog. Keep talking. Um, so, this <laughs> deal, I start my, I, at the beginning of my life insurance career, there isn't anybody that I know that has any money that's married that's worried about dying. Right. And I, and I call my friends and I work and I get them to do these starter policies that by the time, it's like catching little fish. You bring them in. Yeah. You, you clean them and there's like two bites and then but you spend a day for it and you're like starving to death. Yeah. But then I got a break. One of my friends got married and he got pregnant. Uh, his wife got pregnant like months after they got married. And then I got invited to a couple shower. I didn't know what a couple shower was. They invite all their snooty friends. They come over to their house. Um, you bring them a gift for the baby. So I said to my sister, like, what do I get? And she said, I don't know. Go to Dayton Hudson, our large department store, luxury department store. She said, your friends are kind of fancy. They're registered there. I'm like, what's a registry? She's like, there's a computer thing called the Stork Registry. And if you go into the Stork Registry, you just put in their name. It'll give you a list of everything they want. You buy it. You give it to them. They take it off the list. You go. Everyone's happy. Well, I go march through the tundra of Minnesota to this department store. I put it into the computer, and the S's come up. And it lists every S that's registered currently. Mm. And it's just their city. So I go to the cities that have the most money. And I click on it, and not only did it tell their name and what gifts they wanted, but in 30 years ago, the world was stupid. It didn't realize that people would take your data and do stuff with it. <laughs> Right. They listed their address, their spouse's name, the day the baby would be born, and their phone number. No email because email wasn't a thing then. Right. I printed out every list I could till it ran out of paper. I sat and like printed 400 names out. Now I got my buyer. Wow. Now, how did I connect with them? I called them up. Ring, ring, ring. The lady would say, usually the lady would answer. And she'd be like, this is Samantha. I said, hey, Samantha, Tommy Schaff. She's like, 
hi, how can I help you? I go, my name's not familiar. Oh, Northwestern Mutual. Nope. Oh, then this will be a short call. Um, I sell life insurance. Everybody hates it. Um, the only people that ever talk to me fit into one category. Can I give it to you? And if it's not you, hang up on me. If it is, give me a second to tell why I called. I help young families living on the right side of town, probably just starting their family, bought their first house, and likely considering or just started their family. Now, I'm not a business executive. I don't know anything about anything other than that. But if that's you, I'm your, I'm your huckleberry. Um, do we have a reason to talk? We're having a baby. Get out of the baby. Listen, listen, Samantha, there are two kinds of people, people that love insurance and people that hate insurance, people that think it's a good idea, people that think it's the devil. If it's the devil, hang up on me. Which one are you? Oh, we believe in insurance. I said, oh, why is that? She said, well, to be responsible, you know, in case we died, something happened. I said, good for you, bad for me. She goes, why do you say that? I said, well, you already bought yours. She goes, no, we never bought ours. <laughs> no, no. I, said, I thought you believed in it. Well, we're really busy. Yeah, but we're going to do it after it's over. Like after we have the baby and life slows down, then we're going to take care of this. I said, I don't mean to be bad, scary. This isn't going to happen to you. But if your spouse dies today, what are you going to do? Because you don't have coverage. You're still going to have the baby, right? She goes, well, of course. I'm like, what are you going to do? Because it happens to somebody. Yeah. If you need it in eight months from now, you need it today. And she can you come in and talk to us? And then here's what would happen. 1987, I would talk to someone, couple, for three hours about their life. What are your dreams? Where do you, my acronym today, all these ideas have come into a thing called stories. It's your stories. What's your situation and what's your target and timetable? What do you want to do and when? What's going to get in the way that could thwart that? What would be, what have you, what are you doing today to mitigate those risks if you do nothing, is that, is that reasonable? If you do nothing, can you live with the potential outcome, realizing it doesn't happen to everybody? Is this something you care about? Let me see if I got this. Here's where you are. Here's where you want to be. Here's what's getting in the way. Here's what you are doing right now. Nothing. Here's the impact if something happened. You don't like that. Here's why. How did I do? Skill of zero to ten. Uh, zero is clueless. Ten is, do you stalk us? Oh, how did I do? Um, see, there's no pitch in that. The greatest presentation that will ever be done in history is the one where the prospect presents to you. Now, in complex, very large, multiple million-dollar sales, of which I've been in uh, many that are over $100 million, we got to change some of that around. But in smaller sales, at the time I was selling maybe a $6,000 solution, life insurance first year premium, that made me $5,000 a night. I would do that two or three nights a week in 1987, and I was 23 years old. 
Wow. I won some awards. They said, let's, let's have you present. So I presented and they said, no, no, take him off. We do not want <laughs> doing that. We do not. Yeah. You know, they, they did not like especially, hey, if you die, you know, what will, if your husband dies, are you going to be okay? They were like, you yeah. can't. So, but here was my point, that thesis, even today when I do a gated cell and it's for a $10 million piece of software to build a $100 million um, football facility um, that has uh, government money, there's always somebody that's the center of that, that we mm. get access to. We, we, I use the same selling algorithm if it's a $3,000 transactional thing or if it's $100 million, the difference is my steps. When it's an individual, I can close. In an individual, I can close without doing a presentation at all. I'd just be like, at the end, what do you want to do? Let's go. Yeah. I didn't present anything. Other times, in a larger sale, um, it's gated. So I'm going to go with what I would call the emotional buyer. Here's the challenge. A lot of times when we're pitching, we are selling to a group that has to make a recommendation to someone upstairs. Correct, absolutely, yeah. Usually this happens because they find us, we don't find them, or we right. call too well. For me, I, you could sell up, but I'm a lazy guy. <laughs> I'm a, I, I don't want to sell up. I want to start high because yeah. I have a belief, and here's my belief. If I stay out of my way and I get clear who I really help and what problem they have without me, I can get in front of anyone, not because I'm special, but because people who have big needs are looking for solutions all the time. But the solution they're looking for is usually the wrong one. The mind that has the problem can rarely see the problem they really have. You think you have a cough, you have something else. A person that has Objectivity can pope and find the right thing. In the world of software, Gartner Report recently came out, said that 72% of all technology projects never return their investment, much less get mm. a return on their investment. Why? Somebody says, we need a function, and then a bunch of little people run around and say, vendors, pitch us on how you can help us get a function. And then they build something that never had to be built. I'm like, let's slow down. I got a mantra in selling. It's called, I'm a difference maker. I meet with difference makers for the purpose of making a difference. If we are not going to do something that matters, let's put our life force somewhere else. Like, I don't know if I have a day or 40 years left on the planet, but I am not going to waste a day with any time that doesn't make a difference. I don't want to. I want to do things that make a difference for someone's life so that the life I have actually matters. So what I, I remember marveling at you during your training and I'm marveling at you again now hearing you talk. And, and I'll tell you why. It's because you're making it all sound so incredibly easy. So if we talk about you having these conversations with, with prospects, on the surface, you're, you're asking innocent questions. But I think there's a lot of psychological depth to these questions. You're asking questions that mean you're 
your audience, your prospect needs to confirm something. And you'll even ask them a question asking them to confirm the opposite so that they, they come back at you with a vengeance. I, I guess all of this is probably, I'm sure, second nature to you these days. But did it take time to think analytically about the kind of psychology behind it? Or are you a natural kind of gift of the gab, do you think? I'm the least natural person that ever <laughs> I don't know about that. Oh, God, Danny, I'll tell you stories, and I will in a second, but I studied everything. Like, I read the sales books, and I found out a bunch. It wasn't based on science. The only science I saw was spin. Mm. Um, there were methods, and a guy had a submarine, and a guy had a pink orange. And I mean, like, listen, you can have all kinds of analogies for how you sell. Um, the wheel, the wedge, the... Um, no shortage. But where things changed for me is I read the psychology books. And if you came in right. my house, you would see hundreds of sociology books and hundreds of, of uh, psychology books and hundreds of psychological assessment books. I had a chance to meet with uh, one of the greatest athletic coaches in America history, John Wooden. He was 90 years old at the time. He had won 10 national and college basketball championships. And he was an old, um, you know, well-recognized and revered guy. And I had three days with him. And I picked him up and I would drop him off. And I said, when I dropped him off, you know, before I go, if there's any advice I would give to small business, you know, 100 to $300 million companies is like where I usually play. Mm -hmm. um, what could I learn from your life that I should remember and give this advice perpetually? And he said, you can't win without the players. And I said, okay, I wrote that down. And then he said, but just because you have the players doesn't mean you win. Mm. When you have, you don't train people and hope they get great. You pick the great people and now you can afford them to train them. You know, the, the, the people that make the biggest return on my training, are the best ones that come in. Right. It's not I train the bad to make them good. I train the great to make them legends. Like, because mm. see, they don't get, they have so many other things already working that little hinges swing the big doors. Now, so all of it, it's simple. It's very simple to do. The challenge is we get in the way of doing it. It's not like these things are impossible to learn, they're hard, they're complicated, but we bring our beliefs in and to, to deconstruct beliefs that we put into our, our whole person, that's hard. It takes a while to audit those out, but I know it's possible and I know it for this reason. As a kid, I wasn't well-liked. I, um, I remember... Uh, trying to join this Catholic youth organization called Columbian Squires, and they had never not let somebody in in history. But I changed from the Catholic school to the public school, and I told my mom and dad, listen, they're not going to let me in. I, I left the Catholic school. Like, they hate me. And uh, they're like, no, 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 they let everyone in. Plus, your dad's a bigwig, you know, in the parent mm -hmm. club. I went in, and I didn't get in. I didn't get in. I went, I pretended I was in. I would go drive with my dad, in, you know, three miles from out of town into the city. Um, 
and he'd go to his meeting and I'd go to the library and then I'd come back. I did this for six months because I couldn't tell my dad that I couldn't get in. Eventually an adult saw me and they go, hold it. I've seen you around. Did you tell your parents that you got you that you're going to the meeting? Well, then they beat the crap out of the kids and made them take me. Now, Danny, does this sound like the natural? Listen, the next year, if it's bad not getting in, it's worse having someone make you take you. Oh, God. But I will tell you that over time in experiments, I not only, I became the state president two years. I was in sixth grade at the time. When I was a junior and senior, I was the state president. I won a national awards in that organization that wouldn't let me. In high school, I ran for class president four times and got beat by a drug dealer four times. <laughs> I ran for the state. You can't be that appeal, though, I guess. I was the guy who wanted to be the leader, and people thought, take a break, dude. Like, yeah. we don't like you. I wanted to be the boy state governor and the state this and that. I ran for everything. And then I started saying, what's the deal? And not unlike Jay. By the way, you work for a guy named Jay? Yeah. I once asked him. His name was John, by the way. Right. I, said, I never knew that. Jay Schwann we're talking about. Yeah. I never knew he was called John, actually. There you go. Yeah, he, I said, what's the deal? He said, I was little. People picked on me. And I went to college. And I decided I would just become a new person. So I became Jay, period. And then I decided who I would be. And I'm like, it worked for him because he created a heck of a company. I work with them at Solstice, and that's how I got brought over to uh, mm. St. Ives and Ken and Carta. Um, but he rechanged. I said, but see, I kind of did that in college. I said, okay, I'm starting over. And, um, and then after I got out of college, I started, I had these metamorphoses, metamorphoses that it's kind of like you're the caterpillar and you shed your skin and you become the butterfly. And then I did it again. And then I did it again. And part of it, I don't know if this is even helpful, but part of my journey so that I become pitchless or when I became pitching, I would be more authentic, came from a children's storybook called The Velveteen Rabbit. Oh, I know this story. Yeah, so in this story, there's a little boy and he's sickly. Maybe he has like uh, the plague or something. He's got maybe tuberculosis. He's sick and he's in his bed all the time because he's sickly and he has this little lovey. He has this little fake rabbit, you know, warm rabbit, hug it and snuggle it and make him get comfortable. And during the day, he would look out at the, uh, out the window and see the rabbits running around and he would revere these rabbits. And at night, the toys would talk. The toys, you know, he had toys. He had toys with buzzers and and like sirens and sharp edges and plastic and all that. It's almost like Toy Story, right? It's like hmm. there's a Woody and there is a, the Woody is the little rabbit basically. And Buzz Lightyear are the rest of the toys. And they talk and they say, what's it like to be real, Danny? What's it like? What's it like? They address these questions to a character, the rocking horse called the skin horse for he had real like skin, he used to be a real horse and now he was a rocker. They said, skin horse, you were real. What's it like to be real? And he said, approximately in the book, well, 
doesn't happen for a lot of people. Usually it happens when you're old. Your eyes are like falling off and your seams are split and all your fuzz is worn off, but they don't care. They don't care because you're real. Well, I read that book and I read that book. I did some transformational psychology experiences. You know, uh, you might've known it as Esther. Today it'd be called Landmark Forum. Um, and I thought about this skin horse and I thought about it and I said, my problem is that I wasn't real. See, I was a natural pitcher. If you know disc high eye, I was a be the center of attention even when people didn't want to. I wanted to be noticed. I wanted to be charming. I wanted to be recognized. I wanted people to clap for me. That's why the you know, comedy and tragedy, the pictures from theater are exactly the opposite, but they're the same. You show me a great comedian, I'll show you a person with pain. Well, I was that person. I was using the stage to do those things. And then one day I said, Danny, what if I didn't have to? What if I just told the truth? What if I just said what I believed and quit prancing and quit caring? What if instead of trying to get everyone to love me, I just figured out who would and I looked for them? You don't have to sell people that love what you do. You don't, the heart surgeon doesn't have to look for prospects. The people who need a great heart surgeon find them. I decided to use attraction instead of persuasion. Now there's influence on in all of that. There's influence on in all of that, but I don't use influence to sell somebody I shouldn't. Mm. I use influence to find out if they have the problem I solve. I stopped being a person that talked about being a problem solver. And my, my ethos, my persona, the who I am began, I am a problem finder. And I have two jobs, find a problem and find out how much it costs. If there will not be a return of investment, if there will not be a return on investment, if it doesn't have something that's so crazily on their side of the equation, there are other people that will make, I'll make more of a difference for. Who can I make a difference? As a person that wants to do big things in the world, you know, uh, Danny, I would like to have riches and I would like to be remembered. I'd like to do all of that but not because I run around beating my drum, but whatever I've given, I'm a good steward of. If somebody gives me a dollar, I want to minimally to get 10 more or else I don't want to go. Sometimes that's a hundred, sometimes it's a thousand to one. When you give people a thousand to one return, they tend to remember your name and tell their friends. So, um, I don't have to pitch for that. What I actually have to do is anti-sell. I don't have to pitch them, I can do it. But I need to pull it away and say, don't do this if this isn't a big enough problem or if you could do it yourself. I'm doing things that are, I wanna do things that matter to someone. If you think you're better off, 
by yourself, do it. I dare you. Do you feel lucky? Do you, punk? It is the cold beast <laughs> of itself. Yeah. There's a thing called high-quality dyadic interaction. And high-quality dyadic interaction summarized, there are three words and they're like circles. Competence, character, and concern. That's what the three are. And what they're basically, people ask you, uh, character, do I trust you? Do I trust you? When the speech is about you, you're all, no one trusts you. When they only tell you the good things, no one trusts you. So you have to tell people, if you want more trust, you admit to what wasn't great for you. In this mm. opportunity, I told you, I was not liked. A group didn't let me in. I was the first one. And I lost all these elections in the row. A, it's true. B, it explains my backstory of why I did all this work. It mm. makes it so I can trust this person. By the way, I don't get smaller because of that. Me nice. admitting my weakness makes me bigger. Yeah. So that's character. Concern. Do I care about you? If I pitch to try to get business before I learn what your story is, what your problems are, I care about winning. I care about economics. I don't know you. Mm. But if I make this about you, or if I'm in a big room and I say, hey, listen, I did not have a chance to talk to all of you. But I had a chance to talk to some people before I came here. And when I talked to them, by the way, I want to thank so-and-so, 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 mm. so-and-so. Here are themes that came up today. I'm going to speak to those themes because that largely works in this room, I think. If this isn't for you, I hope you enjoy the next hour and a half. I help people that have this problem and Molly have this problem and this other person named a chose to be anonymous, suggested these. By the way, show of hands, how many of you can relate to that? Mm. So those challenges are hard and it can be difficult. By the way, I know because I've been there. This is my story. And these are the challenges that I had. Not made up, not like, you know, my challenge. We didn't have a ton of money. My mom loved my dad. They've been married 60 years. Like, come on. What problems? Nobody died. We don't have cancer. My siblings have all been married over 30 years. Yeah. I've been married 27. Um, but you know what? There were the imperfections, so you share those. Yeah. Then people go, I like this guy. See, mm. concern and competence. That's why I spent my life learning these skills. Because I had a wound, and now I don't. And I hope that somehow this will bless you. The last one is competence. Do you know what you're talking about? Do you know what you're talking about? So I only talk about things I know. I do some pitching, but it's not what I would say is any part of my identity. Yeah. If people were looking for a good pitcher, they'd probably pick me. And I'd say, why are we pitching at all? Right. Let's go, let's go find out what they need. And let's mm -hmm. eliminate the competition before we ever get there. Mm-hmm. If I want to bring, so um, that, that, that would be my gift, is to look at whatever pitch you're doing, how are you demonstrating your competence? And do you think a speech will do that? Or do you think your questions will do that? In my life, there's always competition. 
The way I get rid of them is not by winning a speech contest. It's by asking questions the other people should have and didn't. And I tell them they did. Hey, I'm the last one in so that we can get through this because I know you don't have a lot of time. When you sat down with the other groups and you talked through this question, what conclusions did you make? Oh, you haven't done that? Huh, interesting. Well, let me ask you this. When you guys thought about this and you got together and you did your research to isolate what this was, what did you come up with? You didn't do that? Oh, how about when you did this? After about, you know, the first time at an amusement park, you swing the hammer, you win a keychain. The second time you swing the hammer and you hit the bell, you win a doll. The third time, you have to carry like Mickey Mouse that's five feet around for the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. In the questioning, when I ask three questions that get a, we never did that. And there's a look like, how come we haven't done that? Why don't we know that? I achieve my competence when I say I would love to present. You ever been overpromised and underdelivered? I'm going to be the next disappointment in your life. We could fix that. Mm. You have a process, and it's to not give someone an advantage, including you. Your process yeah. is designed for you to fail. If you'd like to do that, do that, but we're going we're gonna to remove ourselves. Mm. If you'd like to open this up and let us do our inquiry so we can find the real problem, so we can make a difference, I'd love to do that, or else we're not going to play. Do you feel lucky? Do you, punk? I don't say that. But see, now I have my confidence. Now I'm also, this guy doesn't want to win business that they're not going to be good at and wants to solve that's concern. Mm. Now, what does that say about my character? Those are the three things. If I, if I had a, a metrics, uh, I would always be, are we being high character? Are we demonstrating our concern? Are we giving lip service to that? What would a concerned person really do? I would measure twice, cut once. Yeah. I would say it's easy to get business. It's hard to make it work. Mm. I would say... Spend more time on the problem than the solution because we find the right problem. The solution is elegant and simple. Occam's razor, the simplest thing is usually the best thing. I made a list. Maybe we'll end with this. But uh, we're going into October, and I've been planning this for years. Do you know the biggest star in the world is entertainment star? Dwayne Rock Johnson. Okay. Now, Dwayne Rock Johnson is coming out with a new movie. It's called Black Adam. And okay. in Black Adam, he is going to be an anti-hero. And they're going to rebuild the whole DC platform on him. Wow. The biggest star in the world is going to bring together the, the, um, the Justice League, you know, all that. They're going to bring them together and they're going to have this aberrant guy. And now it's going to be interesting. I was like, he's the biggest star in the world, the most charismatic guy in the world. He's successful in all ways, hasn't done anything really bad, admits to the sins of his past. He's the perfect hero. So what I did is I went out. He had a TV show on HBO called Ballers, where he was a sports agent for five years. Oh, yeah. And there were like 60 episodes or whatever these shows. 
And in every one, Mr. Muscles comes in with these ridiculous, amazing suits. Like, right. he is well-dressed. And then it's like every show, it's like, and they're loud, they're green, they're plaid, they're like, but he gets away with it because he's got style. I think, what a bunch. I hunt down the studio. I said, what'd you do with all the suits? Well, here's what I'll tell you. I have 52 suits in this office of Dwayne Johnson's. What? I have 59 of the shirts from that show. And I have 32 pairs of his shoes, size 14s. And you know what's going to happen? In October, I am going to, I found a list. I did my research. Who are sports fans that have companies that are 100 to 300 million who have liked Dwayne Johnson on Facebook? And I got my audience. Wow. And you know what? Some of them are going to get a shoe. Hey, I'm sending this rather large <laughs> shoe to get my foot in the door at your place. But before you throw uh, nice. it out, look at it as a gimmick. This is not an ordinary shoe. Besides its huge size, it happens to represent the foot of the biggest movie star in the world. Do I have your attention? Yep. The reason this is Tommy Schaff. I'm a sales trainer. And I enlisted the help of Rock Johnson. That's his shoe. In fact, here's the authenticity for it. Now, why would I send this to you? In pandemic, people, your sales force told you, oh, we can't get in front of anyone. No one's buying, blah, blah, blah. You know what happened? They couldn't get attention. By the way, you're still reading, and I sent you a shoe. The shirt. Are your salespeople costing you the shirt off your back? Money doesn't disappear. It's merely transferred. Different people are getting that, and you're not. If you'd like to find out why and how you can get in front of anyone, but here's what I'll tell you. I sent this to 20 other software firms, and I'm taking four clients. Would you like to meet? Now I'll use scarce nice. Yeah, yeah. Suits. For my really great people, I'm going to send them a seven-foot box. And in it, it's going to be a mannequin, and in it, it's going to be a suit. <laughs> Two people. I have, I, have, I have Dwayne Johnson's suit from the Oscars and for the Emmys and for the American Globe. Wow. Uh, so a couple of them are going to get, like, purple velour tuxedo suit that you could see. Like, So I'll send it to them, and the letter will be in the pocket. So when you stick it up, be like, I bet you never got a box like this before. Well, it's going to get weirder. The reason I sent you, and you're reading the letter, you saw it, go open up the left-hand pocket. Because when you open up the left-hand side, you're going to see Dwayne Johnson's name in there. I didn't sew that. It's his. Wow. Now, why would a sales trainer in the Midwest send a seven-foot crate with a mannequin with Dwayne Johnson's suit to get your attention? <laughs> By the way, if you're bored, quit reading now. I'm just going to fuck with them. And you yeah. know why? By the way, you know what, Danny? When I write these letters and I think about that, you know what I do? In my, you know what I'm thinking in my head, Danny? Well, tell me. I'm thinking I'm having a crap ton of fun. Right. And when I call to follow up, guess what? It's going to be fun. Is yeah. it going to be rejection? No. Is it going to be an adventure? Yes. Would I pay for this crap? Yes. Here's the ridiculous thing. I bought all that crap for $18,000. It's going to probably cost me thirty-five dollars to forty dollars to send it. But let's say I get 60000 into it. 
I get 150 at-bats. 150 at-bats. And any client is going to be worth a half a million to a million dollars profit to me. Mm -hmm. Do I care? What stories do you think I'll have two years from now? Tommy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Always love to listen to your stories. Like I said, you've been absolutely inspiring. And I think anyone listening to this podcast will get a huge amount after, out of it, way above and beyond pitching. So I want to thank you again. And perhaps next year at some point, you can come back and you can tell me about how these uh, Dwayne Johnson uh, items of clothing went and bring back some, some fun stories about those adventures. I would love to. It's going to be great. Although we for sure, I'm telling you, I'm writing you down, Danny Fontaine. We are going to the game at at uh, London. We're going to the local St. Louis Cardinals. In fact, that's one of them right there. But we are going to the St. Louis Cardinals play uh, baseball in England. I don't even know what the field is. I don't think it's Wembley. Uh, but um, let's do that in, like, June next year. What do you say? I'm in. I'm 100% in. And I've got you on video and audio recording making that offer <laughs> all right very good all right hey, if someone wants to like just connect um i don't have a big presence on the internet because i don't want people randomly showing up but um if you'd like to connect the best way to do that is linkedin linkedin and they can put tommy schaff s-c-h-a-f-f major league sales and i hope that we connect um it's good to connect with you danny uh, congratulations on the good you're doing in the world. I appreciate it. Tommy, signing off. This has been another episode of Pitch Masters. Go to pitchguy.co.uk for updates and information or search for Pitch Guy on social media for regular videos on sales, psychology, storytelling, creativity, and much more. <laughs>